Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm Mike Conrad. For those of you who are keeping track, this is episode number 111. Historically, circuit assemblies are rigid devices. IoT, or Internet of Things, has opened up the opportunity to embed electronics into a near-limitless array of form factors. Some of these form factors require the electronic assembly to be flexible, such as in wearable or perhaps medical applications. To complicate matters, the metal conductors on the assembly historically have been rigid, as I mentioned before, and not flexible or malleable. That may change with the adoption of liquid metals. We were all exposed to the concept of liquid metal, probably back in high school in science class when we played with mercury, or perhaps in the 1991 film Terminator 2 with the liquid metal villain, the T-1000. Will science fiction become reality? My guest today is Dr. Michael Dickey. Michael is currently the Camille and Henry Dreyfus Professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at North Carolina State University. Michael received a Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology and a PhD from the University of Texas. From 2006 to 2008, he was a postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Professor George Whitesides at Harvard University. Michael completed a sabbatical at Microsoft in 2016. Michael's research interests include soft matter, liquid metals, gels, and polymers, for soft and stretchable devices, electronics, energy harvesters, textiles, and soft robotics. And hopefully, for the sake of humanity, not liquid metal T-1000 villains. So without any further ado, I welcome Dr. Michael Dickey to the show. Michael, thanks for joining me today. I'm, I'm so thrilled you're my guest. Thank you, Mike. I'm excited to be here and honored. Thank you. Well, thank you. So um, your work is fascinating. I've watched a few of your uh, past interviews, and I can't wait to share it with uh, with my audience. Um, how does one wake up one morning with an interest in liquid metal? I, I find liquid metal fascinating, clearly. Um, but and before uh, I let you answer that, when I, I was first exposed to the concept of liquid metal, of course, back in high school in science class, as most kids probably were, um, only back in my day the science teacher had us all stand up kind of shoulder to shoulder, put our palms out and poured a little drop of mercury in each of our hands. And we were able to, to play with it. Of course, some kids dropped it and then it just scattered into a million little tiny balls. And we were, you know, picking it up with sheets of paper, trying to get it all to, you know, join back together again. Uh, probably not the safest, the safest experience in the world uh, from what we know about mercury today. I don't know if we didn't know about mercury today, but you know, I, I think that was just a different time. You know, I would imagine the teachers probably, you know, smoking a cigarette with one hand and putting mercury out in students' hands with the other. Um, how did your interest in liquid metal come about? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that whenever I give talks on this topic, I usually ask people, you know, what is the first thing you think of when you hear the term liquid metal and they either say mercury for the reasons that you just mentioned, or they'll say terminator. And unfortunately, those are two things with sort of negative connotations. And I've been 
slowly trying to change that perception. Although um, Mercury believer. might Mercury might kill you slowly, the Terminator probably doesn't take that much time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my foray into this material began when I was a postdoc. So um, my PhD actually was on polymers and specifically polymers for making computer chips, photolithography, photoresist, those kinds of things, which I'm sure most of your listeners know about. And so it was it was also a little bit of a strange topic for me. And if so, if you'd asked me, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, liquid metal, I would have said also mercury or, or the Terminator. Um, but it, it was during my postdoc that I got uh, kind of started learning about this, started getting exposed to, to this topic. And the, the way that I got involved was that one of my lab mates was using uh, liquid metals, not mercury, but uh, gallium and gallium based alloys, which is what we're going to talk about today. And he was using them to make very simple electrodes to surfaces. So if you imagine you have a, a surface, could be a silicon wafer or something like that, and you want to make an electrical contact to it, one way to do it is to just put a droplet of liquid metal on the surface. And he noticed that when he um, tried to pull the, the droplet off the surface, it was sticking to the surface. And not only was it sticking, but it was forming a, a cone shape kind of like what would happen if you stretch you know had bubble gum and you pull on bubble gum you you uh, it would thin in the middle and form a cone like shape and so that was very weird because liquids typically don't do that you know if you tried to do that with water you'd end up with a hemispherical structure and um, so that got me interested and um, one of the punchlines from this that we're going to talk about is the the reason it does this is it, it um, it's a liquid, but on its surface, it reacts with air and forms a very thin oxide. And oxide is like just another fancy word for glass. So it's very, not a surface very, tension difference. It's an oxide that's causing it to semi-coagulate on, 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 a, on a thin layer on the, on the top. Is that correct? Exactly. So it reacts very, very quickly with air and forms an oxide. And that oxide is about three nanometers thick. So um, yeah. if, if, you know, if, if those words don't mean a lot to you. You know, your diameter of your hair is about a hundred microns. And um, so this is like, I don't know, I have to do the math in my head real quick, but it'd be like 30,000 times uh, thinner, something like that. That's funny because um, to me, it's more intuitive that something that thin would not have that much shaping power, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's not much, yet it's still able to uh, affect the shape and keep it from flattening out or keep it from rounding out or whatever natural form it wants to take. Yeah, exactly. So I usually tell people it's, it's kind of similar to a waterbed where you've got water liquid on the inside and then you've got the shell. But to your point, uh, because the shell in this case is so thin, it's really only strong enough to, to hold structures that are um, small. So yeah. like say less than a millimeter or so. Mm -hmm. But you know, in the world of electronics, that's, um, that's an, a relevant length scale. You know, if you're going to make a wire or something like that, it's, uh, it's strong enough to hold that shape. Now, the reality is if you touched it with your hand, it's very easy to break. So usually what we do is, you know, you, we, we use this shell to basically pattern the metal into shapes that would normally not be allowed by surface tension. Sure. So most liquids are going to form droplets. Here we want to form it into wires or antennas or different shapes like that. And then ultimately we embed it into rubber so that you don't, it's kind of like wet paint. So if you leave it exposed, it would be very easily smear. 
but by encapsulating it, just, you know, just like you would do with any other electronics, you typically have some packaging that you put the electronics in and here the packaging just happens to be stretchy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we've used liquid metal and I'm, I'm thinking of mercury now in mm-hmm. electrical slash electronic, mostly electrical applications, uh, probably more applications than I'm aware of, but the ones I am aware of are things like switches, uh, thermostats, mm-hmm. uh, typically mm-hmm. have a bulb with mercury in it. Um, and you know, connected to a spring that changes, orientation based on temperature and it sloshes the mercury to one end of the switch to open or close it. Um, I remember when I was a kid, um, mercury light switches came out and all of a sudden there was no more click, you know, there was no more um, Mm -hmm. spring loaded switch. It was a a mercury switch, which made them very silent when you turn them on and off. Um, And I'm sure there are probably other applications, maybe heat dissipation applications or something that, that, that mm-hmm. liquid metals of some sort have been uh, in electronics. And what do you view as um, an application, before we get into the science of, of liquid metal um, and its shape-shifting um, uh, capabilities that, you've, uh, that, that, that you talk about, um, what are some of the applications that uh, gallium, in this case, uh, would find in electronics and what would that outcome be for electronics? What can we do with that that we currently can't do or can't do well based on non-liquid technology, the kind of historical technology? Right. So the, the thing that got me personally interested in this topic and got me engaged um, is the idea of making electronic devices that are soft and stretchable. So, you know, your, your cell phone or your, your laptop or Pretty much any conventional electronics are rigid and the the notion with the liquid metal is that it's it's literally as soft as water so if you could pattern it into um, wires interconnects antennas these types of structures then you could start to imagine devices that could be truly stretchable so it's just one example and we'll maybe talk about this in just a little bit but as one example if you put it as kind of the simplest example, actually, I'll say, is if you can just imagine putting the liquid metal in a rubber tube, you have now formed a wire that is as stretchable as the rubber tube. So it's, you know, imagine something like a rubber band, but it's as conductive as a metal. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. And, and that, that was what it initially got me excited. I think later we'll probably talk about other applications, but in terms of the, the electronics space, like that's, that's really a distinguishing thing. There's, as best I know, there's there's nothing that can come close to the combination of stretchability and conductivity that's enabled by these gallium alloys. You know, clearly a wire is malleable, right? So that's good. You can shorten it, but this is your limit here. You, you cannot make it any longer. Um, so if you have a device that, um, or an application that requires a stretchy conductor. Um, you either currently have to put a large service loop in there to uh, to allow a little extra lengthening, but you're still limited. When you get to the end of that service loop, it, it's a hard stop, right? Uh, pull it any harder, it'll just it'll it'll break. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's an interesting application for something that um, I, I can imagine some kind of wearable where it's you know you put it on flat, but then 
you have the need to curve it. All of a sudden, when you curve it, you need to stretch out the the uh, the conductors. And historically, they don't stretch; <laughs> they break. Uh, so, yes. yeah, that's an interesting application. Yeah, I mean, so you hit on this um, really nicely. So actually, I have this is going to date my phone here, but I've got an example of exactly you what you said, an old, old phone cord uh, cable, which is basically taking advantage of geometry. So even the wire that you showed, which is just a straight wire, the reason that you can flex it is because it's sufficiently thin. And, you know, a, a good example of this from our day to day lives is is wood. You know, we, we use wood to build our houses typically, um, but if you make it thin enough, you have a, essentially a piece of paper and yeah. paper is flexible, but a two by four is, is not very flexible. So it's, it's really just taking advantage of, you know, kind of what other people have done is taking advantage of geometric tricks, making things thin or using uh, serpentine type shape lines that can stretch just because of the geometry, but not because of their inherent mechanical properties. Right. And so that's what the, the liquid metal allows us to do. And, you know, you mentioned wearables. That's I, I didn't really explain why soft and stretchable stuff is interesting. But, the you know, just 30,000 foot view, the idea is if, you know, electronics are sort of in every aspect of our life and the ability to make them soft, the vision here is to be able to put them sort of everywhere, you know, whether it be in, in clothing or in a seat of a car or uh, implantable devices or something directly worn on the skin. Um, and this is a little bit science fiction-y, but if, if you think about the human body, we we have rigid components, which basically are bones. But if you take that part away, then most of our tissue is soft and it's and able to do amazing things, you know, including logic and memory and sensing and all these things. And it's done entirely with soft, stretchy materials. Of course, there's a limit on how stretchy your skin is, but sure. anyone who's um, torn on Achilles tendon knows, knows that, but, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but your point is right. They, we, we connect hard surfaces, bones with tendons, which are stretchy, uh, and mm -hmm. can shape shift to a, to a degree. Um, and I would imagine even gallium loses its infinite ability to stretch because the more you stretch it, the narrower the diameter becomes, you know, again, stretching a piece of gum, you know, as he's talked about earlier, um, at some point you run out of gum, right? You, mm -hmm. It's too thin. Uh, but, um, I guess that can be built in. It, you did something that I find very enviable. Um, uh, you gave a Ted talk, a TEDx talk, uh, a while back. Uh, that's one of my bucketless goals to, to come up with something interesting enough to be able to give a Ted talk. Um, but, uh, you, you mentioned, you made a comment there that shape defines function. Uh, it, and you kind of touched on that a few moments ago. Expand on that if you would, uh, tell me how shape defines function. Sure. So I'll sort of answer that in, in two ways. One very general, then I'll give a specific example, but from the kind of the most general perspective, you know, the, the basis of manufacturing is you take raw materials, which are come typically as you know just chunks of material or little pellets of material whether it's plastic or pieces of metal or whatever and the the whole idea of manufacturing is to take those raw materials and convert it into some useful form so as just a simple example maybe you can imagine uh, a milk carton or or grocery bag or something like that well the, the raw materials in that case is little plastic pellets but it's been shaped into something that's useful. So that's that's probably stating the obvious, but in, in the case of electronics, this is really particularly true because um, you know the way that we shape 
and position. It's not just the shape, but it's also the, the, the location of different materials dictates the way that the circuits work. And um, in the case of liquid metal, I think there's, there's one really nice example where um, an antenna is just a conductor. And it's a conductor that's designed in a certain shape to achieve a certain type of behavior. So for example, there's, you know, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and, and all these different types of um, communication devices. And as far as I understand, just kind of a, you know, layman's understanding is that the difference is just the way that they're, they're designed and shaped. So one thing that we've done is basically take advantage of the fact we, we have a soft conductor that's it's got really good metallic conductivity, but we can also either move it around um, and there's some tricks to do that, or we can put it in a piece of rubber and like literally mechanically change its shape by stretching it or squishing it or something like that. So we've made antennas that actually change their their function. Um, and what you know, function in this case would mean resonant frequency, efficiency, stuff like that. That's so funny you say that. When when I was young, my you know there was no cable TV when I was when I was a kid, and my father uh, had an antenna on the roof of the house connected to a motor that would rotate that antenna 360 degrees in mm-hmm. so many degree increments, and he had this knob on the TV, which was the controller for the motor. And it had all these degree marks, probably five degree increments. And he got his Dymo labeler out. Remember those the, the little plastic strip of embossed mm-hmm. um, uh, letters and numbers? And he would, he would rotate the antenna until channel two came in clearly. And then he would put channel two on the Dymo labeler and stick that on the on the markings, on the, on the uh, graduated markings on the controller. And then he'd rotate it again, turn it to channel four, and then rotate it again until channel four came in clearly. And then he would label channel four. And I think there was about eight or nine stations back in those days. So around the, the label, you know, with all the little graduations were little Dymo labeler markers with all the seven or so television stations we had. Um, that was his way of taking a rigid antenna that did not shapeshift, but still managing to change its orientation so that he could, you know, uh, maximize the reception on each of the local television stations, you know, broadcast signals. Um, that would be a lot easier if the thing would just change shape, you know, on it on its own. You know, that that yeah, would have been easier. easier. Uh, that's that's one example. Um, before we, we're just about to kind of dive into the science of it, which I'm excited to, to get into. Um, but let's just kind of look at the potential 800-pound gorilla and, and, and kick him out of the room. Um, there's a lot of examples in our world of wonderful technologies that's benefited humanity, um, but at a price. Maybe the price is toxicity or danger. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of X-ray technology, for example, Mm-hmm. Wonderful technology. We do so much with X-ray, not just on the human body, but inspecting things that we could normally not inspect. In our world, in the electronic assembly world, uh, we use X-ray a lot to look under bottom-terminated components like BGAs and QFNs, because otherwise you can't you can't see. Um, and that's helped us improve reliability. I'm thinking of uh, energy generation and you know, the the whole you know atomic power, nuclear power. Um, wonderful technology. But it has a, a dark side, potential dark side, if something's mm-hmm. not done safely. Um, 
does gallium have a I know mercury, I mentioned in our opening that you know our science teacher used to pour mercury in her hands, which may explain some things about me, who knows, in my generation. <laughs> but um, does gallium carry any level of known, uh, and I'll emphasize it with known, because we don't know what we don't know, uh, but based on what we do know, uh, what's the safety element uh, or, or the toxicity or lack thereof of gallium? Yeah, so I can elaborate a little bit on this. So the the first thing is is you you hit on something which is I think there's there's things that we don't know, and so people that are listening to this should be cautious. But that said, everything that I've seen and learned about this material suggests that it's got low toxicity or or it's just non toxic. So one one kind of just perspective thing is that if you think about um, <clears throat> You know, why, why is there this perception that liquid metals are toxic? Well, it's basically just because mercury is toxic. And I would argue that there is no correlation between toxicity and melting point of a material, right? I mean, just think about water. Water melts at zero degrees, you know, gallium melts at 30. Um, so the melting point really has nothing to do with, with toxicity. It's just that the only liquid metal that people know tend to think of is mercury, and that is toxic. Um, so the fact that it's a liquid metal is, is not necessarily what would make it toxic. Um, um, but that said, there's, you know, it's still a material and it's, and the truth is, is it's not a material that's found in our natural diets. It's not a, a even a micronutrient, but several studies have shown that if you, you know, you were to get it in your body, um, your body treats it very similar to, to uh, iron because gallium and iron have the same similar ionic radius and similar charge. So your, your body's able to, uh, to, to flush it out. Um, and it's actually been FDA approved for a number of different applications. So you kind of have to clarify a couple things. So there's, there's gallium metal and then there's gallium salts. And just like if you were to, to take a vitamin in the morning and, and, um, like my wife used to take iron supplements. Well, you're not eating iron metal, you're eating an iron salt because iron metal is not going to be soluble in, in your body. So the, uh, so gallium salts have been FDA approved for a number of different applications, which means, you know, that people have put it in their body and, and shown that it gets flushed out. Um, and you know, the other interesting thing, well, really interesting thing about gallium is it has no vapor pressure. So unlike other liquids, you know, that evaporate, this one does not. So it means you can handle it out in the open and don't have to worry about breathing it. So the only, the only way that it could really get in your body is if you, you know, intentionally rubbed it on your skin or you put it in your mouth or something like that. Um, so I would, I would not do that. <laughs> I would recommend not yeah. doing that. Don't try this at home. Yeah. Don't try that at home. But, um, like I said, every, everything that I've personally seen, um, suggests it's not a problem. And, I mean, I know I've, I've personally got it on my skin before and it's, you know, you just wash it off with soap. Um, you can actually buy gallium directly from, I don't know if I can say names, but there's, you know, very common, like Amazon, you can buy it on Amazon. Um, and, and so it's not, not an exotic material in that sense. But again, I would be a little bit careful just because it hasn't been thoroughly studied, but every study that I've seen suggests it's, um, it's got low toxicity. In fact, we had some work, it was a collaboration um, with a colleague, but we, and it was really their idea, but we, we helped a little bit, but the idea was to use liquid metal particles, like really small ones and use them for drug delivery. 
So we showed that, you know, we, we didn't do it in humans, but we, we did it for killing cancer cells and, um, in mice. So we actually went so far as to put the actual metal. So not the metal salt, which is FDA approved, but the metal into, uh, to mice and, and show the different clearance mechanisms by which the, the body removes it. Wow. That's interesting. Uh, you mentioned, um, kind of as an aside, but I, but I, it caught my attention. Did I hear that correctly? That the, uh, metal state for gallium begins at 30 degrees. Yeah. Which so is about gallium, 86 it, degrees Fahrenheit. So, mm -hmm, it's, so it's right now in my room, in my house, it's probably 68 degrees in here or so, uh, Fahrenheit. So it, would it be in a solid state then? If I bought it from Amazon and opened up the package, would it just be a solid metal at that point? So it might be, but there's, there's another two very interesting things about gallium. So one is that, yes, it melts at 30 degrees Celsius, so about 86 Fahrenheit. So that's, you know, if you held it in your hand, that's enough to want sure. to melt it. But right. like you said, in, in a, inside in a temperature controlled environment, it would should be a solid accord, according to thermodynamics. Um, but the reality is, is that it will super cool. And this is something other liquids do, including water, but this one really super cools. So it, it melts at 30 degrees, but um, it freezes well below that. Um, in our lab, we've seen it as low as I think negative 40 Celsius. So that means it's it's actually quite difficult to to get it to freeze. Um, and so so th there's that. But then, uh, but ultimately, it will freeze. And then the other thing is you can mix other metals into it and lower there the melting go. point. Okay. Yeah, yeah I think just, I, just I think like we're going to get into that. I, I remember mm -hmm. seeing that on some yeah. of your earlier broadcasts. Um, the um, is it eutectic? Does it does it have a plastic state, or does it go, you know, twenty nine point nine degrees? Well, it sounds like there's a different definition of of liquid, um, because you're saying it, it its freezing point is extremely low. What's the difference between its frozen state and its non liquid but non frozen state? So you know, uh, twenty degrees C, for example. What, what, mm -hmm. will it be malleable at 20 degrees C? Will it appear to be liquid at 20 degrees C? Yep. It'll okay. Still be a liquid, so there's so. a difference between kind of semi-liquid for lack of a technical term and fully 30 degrees plus 30 liquid. Uh, um, yeah, so pure, yeah. So pure, pure gallium, um, is either going to be solid or liquid. You right. can't, you can't really have both unless you're right at the melting point. So, right. um, you know, it's, if you think about like ice water or something like that, um, you can have ice water where you have solid water and liquid water for a short period of time, but it's not at, it's not at equilibrium. Um, eventually, either the ice melts or the water will freeze. Right. Now, if you could hold that water at exactly zero degrees, you could have the two phases coexist. And gallium is exactly the same way. If you were, if you held it right at 30 degrees, you could have some solid and some liquid together. But, but otherwise, um, if you're above that temperature, it's hundred percent liquid. And then if you're in this, what I call the super cooling state, it's still hundred percent liquid. And, and then when it freezes, it just becomes completely solid. Right. Um, I'm going to switch over to, um, have you share your screen because one of the questions that came into my mind, and I already know the answer cause I cheated and watched some of your prior interviews. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that a lot of my guests right now are, are wondering, there are times when we want our conductors to be rigid, and then there are times when we need to change the, the, the shape of our product. 
we want it to be less rigid or, or, or liquid. Um, and one of the first questions I had when I first heard your topic before digging into it was, well, which is it? Is it, is it solid or is it liquid? And, and um, obviously what you have worked on in all, for all these years is a way to get the best of both worlds, to take a rigid metal, instantly turn it liquid, and then when it's at the shape, when it's at its desired shape, then instantly convert it back to um, a solid again, which I find fascinating because that is not the normal property of metal is one or the other unless you put it through some severe environmental changes. You know, I think of castings, for example. You know, you, you take a solid metal, you melt it down to a couple thousand degrees, you pour it in a, in a mold or a casting, and then, and then you let it cool, and now you have a new shape. Now, obviously, we can't do that in the, in the circuit assembly world um, because other components would, would, would not be happy with that. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch to this view right here, and you know, let's make this the Michael Dickey show. I'll let you, let you drive and... <laughs> and um, um, Explain to our audience what we're seeing and, and you know, uh, how we can go from a solid state to a liquid state with the exact same material. Yeah, so you, you've actually hit on two different, two different ideas that um, are, are two different ways that you can achieve what you just said. So one is... Um, I'm sorry to interrupt, Michael. Let me just say uh, before we get into this, for those of you um, listeners who are in the car wondering what the heck we're talking about, what we're seeing. Um, there's, there's not a really good way to, you know, provide kind of a closed captioning version of, of what I'm seeing here on the screen and what our audience will see on the screen that are watching this on YouTube. So um, let me just suggest that for this particular episode, um, the, the visual assets that Michael is going to show are so compelling um, and so interesting and exciting. Um, Go ahead and finish your drive or finish your, your workout on the treadmill while you're listening to this podcast. But consider when you get to a, a location uh, where you can watch this, go to our YouTube channel, just search Reliability Matters, and uh, find this episode. It's number 111, and you can see. So you don't have any FOMO. There's no fear of missing out here. You'll be able to see some of this extremely interesting uh, video and, and other um, uh, visual assets here. Sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to get that part out of the way in case... Half my audience is going, what are they looking at? Yeah, thank, thanks, Mike. The, the work is very visual and definitely worth checking out. So I hope that you will take the, the time to, to look at it. Um, so, so Mike mentioned there's this idea of going from solid to liquid. And so I'd like to clarify, with this material, you can do sort of what's intuitive, which is to freeze the material and actually make it so that the whole thing is solid. But what I'm about to show you is, is actually a a, a different idea, which is basically the metal is a liquid the entire time, but it we're taking advantage of this oxide shell that naturally will form on the surface of the metal. So what we're looking at here is some a printed structure and there's a reflection. So it's, it's um, sometimes people don't see it right away, but we've written out the word liquid using liquid metal. And uh, there's a syringe that's dispensing little droplets of, of the metal. And the reason it's able to hold in the shape is because of this three nanometer oxide layer that naturally forms. It's just simply the metal reacting with oxygen in the air to form the shell. And I've got a, a video to show exactly how we, we did this. And so to, to really drive home the importance of the shell, I've got this video here in which we've got some of the metal spread on a glass slide. And it's in this 
looks like a kind of a puddle, but if you use this Q-tip, um, which has acid on it, hydrochloric acid, that acid will dissolve away the oxide layer. And without that three nanometer thick oxide layer on the surface, the, the metal has an enormous surface tension and it just will beat up into a droplet. So this is kind of what you would expect if you were playing with mercury. I think at the beginning of the show, Mike mentioned how mercury would, would form like a perfect sphere and it breaks and can break into little droplets, but it's always spherical. That's because metals have enormous surface tension. Um, you know, liquids have surface tension. Water is, from, from your day-to-day -day life, water is probably the liquid with the largest surface tension. And without getting into units, water surface tension is 72. Well, this metal is, depends on the environment, but it can be as large as 700. So what I, what I like to tell people is that, you know, if most of your life you walk around, most people are, you know, somewhere between five and six feet tall. And that's like normal liquids, but um, the liquid metal would be like seeing a 50 foot tall person. It'd be very, very weird. It's so out of your normal everyday experience, it's, it's hard to even imagine. And so, so anyway, that's, that's why this is so interesting is that when you think about metals, they should just form droplets, which is not that useful for electronics, but because of this oxide, you can pattern the metal. So to illustrate this, this is a, a video in which we've got a syringe and we dispense the liquid metal and it forms oxide so rapidly. Um, and you, you can actually see the oxide if you suck the liquid back into the syringe, it kind of wrinkles just like deflating a, a water balloon or something like that. Um, but anyway, we, we dispense this little droplets from the syringe and the oxide forms so fast and is sufficiently strong that we can start stacking those droplets. So if you imagine trying to stack droplets of water, you would just end up with a big puddle or tea or Coke or any sort of other liquid. Um, and th this, the oxide forms so fast, in fact, that you can do a little burst of pressure and it will shoot the metal out of the syringe and it oxidizes so fast that it will actually form a fiber, kind of like Spider-Man. And what we're looking at here is, is also kind of fun, but this is a dead bug that we found in our lab. And my student did this as a joke, but basically he's printing antenna on top of the dead bug. And he, he did it as a joke, but it, it really nicely shows how small these structures are. They're about the diameter of a human hair, you know, on, on that length scale. And we're able to print at, at room temperature. So this is truly ambient patterning of, of metals. So this is, this kind of cuts to the, the heart of it for electronics is that, you know, there's, there's all these ways to pattern metals that are used in, in electronic chips and stuff like that. But the fact that we've got a liquid, not only does it allow stretchable and soft devices, but it also allows new modes of patterning. So there's the 3d printing. You can also inject it. So what I'm showing here is we call a microfluidic channel. It's just a piece of rubber that has a tube built into it, which we actually pattern by lithography. If you apply a little bit of pressure, you can, you can basically squirt the metal from a syringe into that little tube kind of like filling a straw with, uh, with water or something like that. And the pressure from your thumb is enough to break that oxide layer. Cause remember it's only three nanometers thick. It's like a thin layer of glass, very easy to break. And because of the low viscosity of the metal, it's, it's like water, it, you, you know, very low viscosity, you can push it into the channel, but once it's in there, it reforms that oxide. So it's, it's sort of like, um, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like a waterbed naturally forming its own shell. Um, and that holds it in that shape. 
the end result at the end of the day, in this, this particular case, we've injected it into a, a slab of rubber. It's, it's a silicone, it's, it's a rubbery material, stretchy. So if you put this into uh, a rubbery material, you can make a wire that is as conductive as a metal because of, because of the liquid metal, but is stretchable as rubber. So in this case, we're looking at um, a, basically a tube of a rubber tube that's filled with the liquid metal. And I'll play it and you're, you're going to hear some sound that's coming out of these. We've basically converted these wires into headphones. And as we stretch it, there's going to be no degradation in sound quality. So here we go. So we're starting to play a little bit of music through these headphones and it'll get louder here in a second. But see here, there's no degradation in sound quality. And we're stretching these wires to hundreds of percent strain. So I think that at, at max, it goes to about eight times its original length. Wow. So if you imagine you have a wire that is, I don't know, one, one or two feet long, and you could stretch it to the height of a basketball goal, like that's it's really, really stretchy. And of course, if you, if you made this more like a telephone wire, you'd get even further. But this is just a straight wire that we're extending past its original length. So I would um, assume that as, as it stretches the diameter, you know, basically the, the equivalent of the gauge size of the wire uh, will, will be reduced. Um, so it, its current um, capacity, electrical current capacity, would be reduced the more we stretch it out. So if that's the application, one would have to look at the maximum stretchable distance and make sure that it's still got the appropriate diameter to it to, uh, to carry the, the, the desired current load. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So that, that feature is either a bug or a feature, depending on how you look at it. So, sure. so some, some people have used that to create strain gauges, soft stretchable strain gauges, or also sensors of touch, um, taking advantage of the deformation that can happen in the cross section of your wire and using that to sense, actually very sensitively uh, can sense touch um, so that, that's the feature part of it. But the, the bug part of it is you're absolutely right. When you stretch it, you change the geometry. You make the wire longer. And you also make it narrower. And therefore, you change its resistance. Now, the resistivity, the material property does not change. You're simply changing the geometry right. um, by stretching it. And, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, this is, this is a really nice demonstration because it, it can stretch really far. Uh, but for most applications, like if you were going to say, put this into clothing or something like that, the most strain that it would probably endure would be something like 30% strain. Right. Um, so just a, a, you know, a small fraction, like you imagine putting something around your elbow where you, you, you know, you bend your elbow. Well, today I'm wearing a sweater because it's kind of cold here in North Carolina, but um, my sweater is just the, the knit pattern of my sweater is able to accommodate that strain pretty easily. Sure. So, so you wouldn't have huge changes unless you really had an application where you really had to deform it a lot. Yeah, and, and and many applications are not carrying current loads. They're they're sensing. They're they're, you know, they're, they're signal carriers. Not not so much, um, you know, huge amperage carriers. I think we have yeah. we have conductors that work well for that. But and I can't imagine a, you know, a two hundred amp, um, gallium circuit. Uh, that would be that would be pretty pretty gnarly. Uh, does gallium conduct as well as other metals, copper and gold, and things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's not as a good conductor as 
copper, which, you know, is one of the better conductors. And I don't remember the exact number. I should have it memorized by now, but it, it's something like uh, and about an order of magnitude less conductive. Um, I think maybe fifth, factor of 15, something like that. So it's still considered to have metallic conductivity, but not as good as copper. So, you know, I've always kind of argued that you would only use this material if it gives you some advantage that right. you couldn't get with copper because um, gallium is expensive. And, you know, for the, the amount of material that we're using in this example, the stretchy wire, it's a few pennies worth of material. Right. But still, it's more expensive than copper. And then um, and that's also not as good of a conductor. But on the flip side, if you were to compare it to, like, say, salt water or something like that, it's depends how much salt's in the water, but it's at, it's at least a thousand. I think it's maybe 10,000 or 100,000 times better conductor. Um, so compared to other liquids, it's it's far superior, but com compared to other metals, it's it's a little bit worse. You know, one of, I mentioned earlier that kind of the science fiction motivation here, there's the aspects of skin. So skin can conduct signals and it can sense and do all the stuff. Well, another thing that skin can do is heal. So just yesterday I got a little cut on my finger and it sort of hurt, but it's today it's almost better. It's a, mir a miracle. Um, and if we've basically have, have taken advantage of the liquid metal properties to do this. So what we're looking at here is a, a liquid metal wire that's conducting electricity and there's the electricity is lighting up an LED just so it's kind of visual. And we completely cut this device in half, we're literally taking a pair of scissors and cutting it in half. And of course, when you cut it in half, you break the circuit. So the, the light bulb turns off, it's no longer um, conductive. But when we bring the thing back together, that, that metal, when we cut it, it oxidized so fast that it stays flush with the cut interface. So when you bring the, the two pieces together that you just cut, put them back together because it's so soft and it's a liquid, basically that the oxide will break and the, the metal wire goes back together. So we're now seeing that the light bulb is turned back on because there's electricity going through the circuit again. That is and very T-1000 Terminator 2 Yeah, 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 a little T-1000. Self-healing, yeah, for sure. Yep, self-healing. Um, but what makes this sort of special, so it heals electrically, but there's also um, a shell of polymer that we've built around this is like kind of like the insulation in the electrical cable. And it's made from a special polymer that's held together by hydrogen bonds. So as you, you might remember uh, from like freshman chemistry or something like that, hydrogen bonds are not as strong as covalent bonds, but there's enough of them here that it, it holds the material together and they're, they're reversible. So you can break a hydrogen bond and it can go back together. Whereas normally when you cut a material in half, I mean, I've got all sorts of stuff from my office, but it's, if I were to cut pretty much anything in my office in half, I'm not going to be able to put it back together. Right. And, and, in it, this and case, once it self heals, is is the connection integrity as if it never happened? Is it is it uh, just back to one complete piece again, rather than a patched, you know, two patched pieces put together? Yep. So you know, as you look at this here, you can you can see where the cut was made. So it's we didn't line line up the two pieces perfectly. So there is a little bit of an edge there that you can see visually, but otherwise uh, the polymer has gone completely back together and, um, and the metal, you know, to the ability of our ability, the ability of our lab to measure this, we, we don't see any changes in resistance before and after. Uh, so, yeah, so basically it goes back together. We've, we, um, 
regain the the mechanical properties. Um, I, I believe it, it, it breaks at slightly lower strain than a pristine material. And that's probably because there's a little bit of a crack there that where stress can concentrate. But yeah, otherwise it's um, it's regained its original modulus, it's stretchable. And, um, and like I said, the electrical conductivity is to a first approximation almost identical to, to what we started with. And because basically it's a liquid, um, it's natural state at that temperature is liquid, uh, and you're applying current and other ingredients to, to, to cause it to um, solidify, um, there's, it would never suffer from metal fatigue like traditional conductors would. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you can, we've, we haven't published this, but we've put some of these wires, now not this particular one, but like the, the headphone wires, we've put them into a, a cyclic strain um, apparatus, basically it's something that can stretch it over and over again. Um, and it's squeaky and really drives people crazy in the lab. Um, so we don't do it all the time, but when we've done it, it's typically fails um, or actually never fails. Um, you know, we can get up to like 10,000 or 100,000 cycles. And typically what happens is the polymer breaks before mm -hmm. the metal. Sure. So the metal is not a problem. Now there is, there is this interesting question that you remember, we've talked about the importance of the oxide. So if you have, a like, uh, I don't know, uh, a wire or a piece of rubber or something that you stretch. Well, every time you, you stretch it, you're breaking, you could potentially be breaking that oxide and then more metal would oxidize. So, if, you know, in principle, if you did this enough times, eventually you would consume all your metal. But we haven't seen that and, and I don't have a good explanation for it. It could just be that it, um, it provides a good barrier to additional oxidation or it could just be that we haven't stretched it enough times. But the Right. Well, the when when I think dark. of ox yeah, when I think of metal oxidation, you know, back in my soldering days, you know, with the wave solder machines, you would always have this thick layer of dross on top of the solder pot, um, and that dross could be reclaimed, but it could never be successfully mixed back in to make it a you know homogeneous material. It was it was it was a loss, and if mm -hmm. you just ran a wave solder machine, ran the pump. And never, never actually soldered anything. You would still consume solder because you have to keep removing the, the oxide layer as it gets chunky and thick. So, in, to your point, this doesn't seem to have at least a measurable loss. Um, the oxide um, layer, once um, the right the right application of either current or or whatever uh, is applied the oxide layer seems to just kind of blend right back into the material and not constantly float on top. It, it, is that right? Or is it always there just in a different shape? Well, sort of the spirit of what you're saying, I think is right, but it, it, it doesn't mix back in. Well, okay. it can mix back in. If you, if you stir this material, you can actually get flakes of oxide to go into the metal. And that's something that we've, and other people have shown recently, but that would um, be a contaminant kind of then it's, it's not really, um, um, well, that's how, I, that's, how I looked at it, that's how I looked at it initially, but actually the, um, and it, I think in general that's true, but, um, but we were doing it in, on purpose because we were trying to change the reality of the way that the, the metal flows. We're trying to change, change it from being water-like, like the bulk, bulk property to, to be like water, to something that was more like toothpaste. Hmm. And that's interesting because of the way it dispenses when it comes out of the, a needle. I don't know if you remember the, the video, but when we're dispensing it out of a nozzle, it comes out as a droplet. Yeah you can change the way it flows, then you could actually extrude it as a, 
more like toothpaste, like a cylinder. Sure. So we, we've been doing it for that purpose. But in the case of the, the stretchy wire, um, my feeling, and I um, don't have proof handy to, to, to prove this to you, but my feeling is that that oxide layer is just on the surface. Okay. It's breaking, probably reforming. Um, and if you look at it over time, I mean, I've, I've got a little sample here that I've handled a whole bunch and it's going to be a little bit hard to see, but it's the NC state logo. Um, you know, over time it starts to look Go ahead and hold, hold that up again, Michael. Yeah. So this is huh. the liquid, That's liquid great. metal pattern in the, um, NC state logo embedded in, um, an elastomer. So I'm going to, I can pull on it. You can see it's oh, look at that. Wow. moves right along with the elastomer. And, you know, it reminds me of silly putty when I was a kid, you know, we would, <laughs> we would put silly putty over a comic strip and pick up the ink and then stretch it out to make it look funny. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. I mean, this is elastic, so it's, you know, it's not going to flow like silly putty, but yeah, so, so, sort of similar. Um, but, um, anyway, this, it's a little bit hard to see on the camera, but this sample, the surface looks a little bit dark, um, just cause I've, I've handled it a bunch, probably got some oil from my hands and, um, and that oxide breaking and reforming. But again, if we were to do careful electrical measurements, we've, we've done this and other people have done it. It's, you don't, you don't see a change of resistance over time. Um, now if you made the wires really small, probably that three nanometers of oxide could be significant, but for most applications that we're working with, we're dealing with wires that are more like, you know, like a human hair, more like a hundred microns or so. Was there more that do you have more? Um, um, graphics for well, us. Well, I do have one other thing that's cool. a, maybe a little outside the the realm of your your audience um, interest, but of, from a science perspective, very cool. So this we're looking at a, a vial of liquid metal, and it is um, sitting in a base sodium hydroxide. So it's just a clear liquid that's got a really a really high pH, and that high pH is important because it keeps the metal free of oxide. And when you shake this thing, this little vial, the, the metal will break up into droplets, kind of like when you shake salad dressing. Um, yes. But unlike salad dressing, this remember the surface tension of this is, is really large. It's like the 50 foot tall person. Um, and so it very quickly phase separates, it goes back into one droplet. Yeah, for the sake of our listeners only, um, you, you have one drop of, of, one droplet of liquid metal. You're shaking it up, it breaks into 30, 40, 50, 60 smaller droplets. And then within just a few moments, when you stop agitating it, it's all coming back together into one single droplet again. It's just popping back into shape. Right. And there's, again, there's no oxide here. So this is driven entirely by surface tension. So we don't have that solid coating. So this, for one, it illustrates why the oxide is so important. The metal naturally wants to form a droplet, but we're, it's only because of this oxide that we're able to, to shape it. Um, but it, it also illustrates that the surface tension is really large. And one thing that we discovered a few years ago was, uh, and, and this was on accident, which was really interesting, but, um, that if you put it in the solution and you apply a voltage to it, and this is only in the solution, this is what's called electrochemical reaction. Basically you're going from, you know, the, the metal conducts electrons. And then when it comes in contact with the water, you have to have some reaction occur because the water conducts ions. Right. Well, that reaction is the oxidation of, of gallium. And from everything I've shown you, what you would expect is it would form a solid shell. It's like the waterbed where you can make the shell appear and disappear. 
But what's interesting, and we're still trying to understand this, is that when we do it under these conditions, it actually lowers the surface tension significantly. So it's like taking that 50 foot tall person and making them basically disappear. So I'll show you here. Um, we've got a video where we're you're looking top down. So gravity is kind of into the screen. And we've got, what, five droplets of, of the metal. And it's sitting in that solution. So it's really high surface tension. And when we apply a voltage, so there's an electrode underneath each of these drops, the metal will spread and adopt the shape of the little cavity that it's sitting in. It's like kind of like a little ice cube tray. And so we've got a triangle and a mm. star and whatever. And so basically we're lowering the surface tension. Gravity squishes the liquid into that little container. And then when we switch the voltage off, whatever was on the surface dissolves away and it beads back up. So that's as close to a really casting. Cool. That's as close to a casting example that I, I could see. Um, yeah. Instead yeah, of exactly. pouring it in, you just place it in and it's normal round spherical shape. And then when you apply current to it, it gravity just yep. stretches it out into its mold, so to speak. Yep. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and I don't want to confuse anyone again. This is very a unique set of uh, circumstances. So if you did this in air, it would it would not work. This has to be right. done in this electrolyte. But it's really interesting because earlier we talked about shape defining function. Well, here you're, we're not making shapes that have really any utility, but it illustrates the idea that you go from a spherical shape into like a star or something like that. So you can imagine if you maybe had like an antenna or something like that, where you can change the shape and tune the frequency or, or even move the antenna from different places, kind of like what your dad was doing up on the roof yeah. <laughs> with the rotating antenna. So just, I guess one more G whiz sort of thing, but this, um, what we, we think is that the surface tension under the right conditions is basically going to zero. So, um, Mike, you know that I'm a teacher. I'm going to gonna quiz you here. Uh -oh. what, happens to, what happens to a liquid when there's no surface tension? What will it, it do? It flattens out. Yeah, there should be no energetic penalty for gravity squishing it down. It should just right. spread and spread. And spread. <clears throat> so um, what, we're, what I'm showing you here is, is a a syringe needle basically that's about the size of a human hair so it's, it's very very small about 100 microns and we're going to pump the metal out of out of the nozzle and it initially you're going to see it's going to form droplets and that's exactly what you would find like on a drippy faucet at home if you sure. just kind of turn on your faucet very slowly it will form droplets and, and same thing if you even have like a garden hose it forms a cylinder of liquid but it will very quickly break up into droplets and this is been known since the late 1800s is called a Rayleigh instability, named after Lord Rayleigh. So this is just what fluids do to minimize their, their surface area. But as you just correctly answered, if there's no surface tension, there's no driving force for a liquid to beat up. So here we pump it, and you'll coming out of this nozzle, and you see it form droplets. Now we start applying a voltage to it under these special conditions, and the droplets get smaller and smaller. And then under the right conditions, it will come out as a that. straight wire. Looks like a lightsaber there from, from uh, yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> and then if you apply too much voltage, you form a kind of a crusty surface and it looks mm. kind of like candle wax and starts really changing the way it flows. But the, the point is, it's, it's really hard to appreciate this. So this is like, it's, um, it just, it should, it should almost blow your mind because Again, this is the the fifty foot tall person. It's a really large surface tension, and so it really should form droplets. 
But because we're able to modulate the surface tension, um, which is a very strong force when you make things smaller and smaller, we can start controlling the shape um, in interesting ways. And was that example pure gallium or was it gallium mixed with anything else? So that one was gallium and indium. And we've, and indium, okay. Another low temperature kind of our, solder. Yeah. yeah, that's one of our favorites to use just because it's commercially available and it's it's melting points about 15 Celsius. So it's truly a liquid at room temperature. We don't ever have to argue with people whether it's a solid or liquid. Of course, in this case, it's obvious it's a liquid. But yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So that was I only had one other video and it's just for fun. But sure. Do you, know, do you, do you know who this guy is? Uh, it's hard. To, uh, I can't really tell on my teleprompter. It's a little too far away. Oh, okay. So that's Seth Myers. And oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, I think he lives in your neck of the woods, if I'm not yes. mistaken. I, I love his show, by the way. I watch uh, his Closer Look segments all the time when, whenever I can. Yeah, so for your listeners, he's a started his, well, I don't know if he's, where he started his career, but he's um, really became a household name on Saturday Night Live. Yes. And then he started his own, eventually started his own late night show, and it's yep. um, he's really funny. Anyway, this was sort of a career high for me. He um, he made fun of our research, so I'll, I'll play this. And oh, I got to see this. Yes. Well, this week, scientists at North Carolina State University announced they discovered they discovered way to move and manipulate liquid metal with electricity. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has already been sent back in time to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of a, a career high for me, <laughs> getting made fun of on late night TV. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, that, that's awesome. Often. That's awesome. Yeah. So oh, anyway, yeah, I've, I've got lots of other fun videos I can show you, but I think the ones I showed you kind of capture the, the essence of this material. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, so before we wrap up, I just have a, a couple more questions, Michael. Um, outside, well, no, let's, let's do this one first. Um, no, let's go here. Outside of the electronics industry, what other industries or applications would benefit from the use of gallium in this case? Yeah, so, well, maybe I'll mention first, within the electronics industry, there's some yeah. applications that aren't, aren't, aren't actually using the electronic features. So it's because it is a metal, it's a very good thermal conductor. And oh, believe it or not, the, the most recent Sony PlayStation um, has this material in it for dissipating heat from the computer chips, as, as you you and your listeners know as transistors get smaller and they become more densely packed onto a chip, there's a lot of heat that's got to be dissipated and metal is about the, the best thermal conductor you can get. And, you know, if you just put a slab of metal like copper on a computer chip, there's always going to be a little bit of an air gap between yeah. the, the chip and the piece of slab of copper. So And thermal dissipating paste. Yeah. Uh, and then know, paste dries are, out over, over the years, right? It's, it's not really a permanent and, you know, solution. They're so gallium, a liquid metal then would automatically form the shape it needs to form. It, it will fill every gap, um, yeah. which makes it yep. a better surface conductor, right? Uh, you don't have those little voids you would with a rigid surface. As, as yeah. much as you can pre-shape the rigid surface, it's still going to be small yep. air gap in there, which will generate heat. That's right. Yep. So it's it's being used um, the, literally. You know, the, the most recent Sony PlayStation's using it. So it's, some of you might might already have it in your living room, and you you didn't even realize it. And um, up until recently, I think you could go to like Walgreens and buy a, a thermometer, old fashioned thermometer that had gallium in it. But 
Um, these days, the, the digital ones are so cheap and so good. I'm not sure that they're even still on the market. I've, I've happened to have one that I just have sitting here in my office that I bought it, you know, drugstore. I don't remember if it was Walgreens, but um, so anyway, there's there's those kinds of things. And, and also still within the world of electronics, um, a lot of your listeners probably know of, of semiconductors like gallium arsenide, gallium nitride that are um, com- also commercial. And so in that case, the gallium is not a liquid. It's just a precursor that gets reacted to form those species and they, those are, are very interesting um, semiconductors so kind of i think you know within the world of electronics um that's probably about it although there there are interesting tools called ones that's called focused ion beam um is that something you're you've heard of before, i have Mike? in the test world yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so yeah people people use them as far as i understand to to do uh to fix um metal conductors that have like little defects you can go back in and deposit material well the the source the ion source in a focus ion beam is gal- typically gallium so that's another place where some of your listeners may have encountered it and either the forgotten or or just not realized that that was that was inside the the tool um but you know for for outside the world of electronics as far as i know there's no commercial applications but i do know that there's at least three companies that I, I know of, one of which is a um, pretty big company uh, that probably doesn't want to be named, but that are working with these materials to try to make electronic devices um, to make them all the things we've talked about, soft, stretchable, comfortable yeah. to be worn against the skin. But, well, I, but think it's IoT, that, I think it's IoT just it, it continues its explosion. Uh, there will be uses for, for uh, stretchy uh, malleable electronics. Uh, yeah, clearly, so. wearables yeah. has proven that. Uh, medical, I'm sure. You know, when there there are what look like mesh patches that one can put on their skin yeah. that are actually circuit yeah. as, small circuit assemblies, sensors of, of certain things, uh, certain sorts. Um, the automotive world yeah. for, for heat dissipation that that's a huge thing right now, particularly with the electrification mm-hmm. of cars. EVs um, are constantly battling that. Um, it, it seems like a, a product in search of an application and yeah. And that's how I described it to people. That's like a solution looking for a problem. And yeah. there's so many unique properties about this material that there are things that it can do that are truly unique that as far as I know, nothing else can quite replicate. And so it's kind of interesting know, you, to me that, me, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead, please. It, it's interesting to me that gallium is a interesting product that doesn't have a lot of, commercial application yet you can buy it on Amazon and you know it just mm-hmm. makes me wonder is it, is it a party trick you know for for the people who buy it on Amazon outside of your world you know uh, you're buying some your students buying some researchers things like that it it does seem for the for the layman for 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 the uh, civilians in, in in the world it seems like a little bit of a party trick cuz it's a safe version of mercury you know f- for whatever but the it it does definitely have some applications and the work you're doing is, is, uh, is, is fascinating. Where, where do you see the future of your work and your research and the application within our, within our space? Where, where do you see that going? Yeah. So you mentioned the party trick thing. I just want to comment on that. So there, there's a fantastic book if you're into science, which presumably your audience is um, on the history of the periodic table, which, I realize sounds kind of like a snoozer, but uh, there's an author, Sam Keen, who really made the history of it come alive in the pages of his book, which was called The Disappearing Spoon. 
And the title is actually a reference to gallium. So there's this parlor trick or party trick um, where you, you mold gallium, you melt it and you mold it into the shape of a spoon. And, uh, and then you give it to somebody to stir their coffee or to stir their <laughs> tea. And when they pull it out, there's nothing left of it. It just, you know, it's disappeared. Yeah, and sure. of course it's in the, it's in the bottom of the coffee, but you can't see it cause it's just melted. Right. Um, so, so the book is called disappearing spoon in, in reference to that. Um, but yeah, so there, I wanted to touch on something you said earlier, which was sort of maybe transition into your question, but it's, you know, the applications outside of electronics, there's a growing number of applications. And, and again, there's nothing commercial that I know of. Um, but one of the things, at least for, for me and sort of my small community is uh, people are calling soft robots. So, you know, when most people envision, envision robots, they're imagining, at least for me, I imagine like the the uh, plant floor, floor at like Ford Motors or something where you've got these rigid right. robots and sparks shooting everywhere. And it's just sure. not a safe environment for humans. So if you contrast that to the human body or, or even something like a jellyfish or, or an octopus that can do these amazing things using soft materials. Um, so there's this interest in using liquid metals um, and, other, and other stuff too, but to, to, to build robots that contain some of these materials so they could safely and, and um, well, first of all, safely interact with humans, number one, um, but also be able to do things that just simply can't be done with conventional robots. So if you think about uh, like a, a mouse or something, it can scurry across the floor, contort itself to go under a door or a small gap, and then you know continue on the other side. So this was something I also learned about during my postdoc, and there's, there's a big field of people that are working in this space. So there's that. Um, but also, you know, one thing we didn't touch on that's, again, maybe tangential to interest of this audience, but gallium has also got some interesting properties for reactions, chemical reactions. And to give you a real poignant one, um, people have shown you can use it to reduce car carbon dioxide. And so this is a very, very timely topic. Yeah. Um, and with car when you, with catalysts, um, catalysts are just materials that help lower the barrier for reactions to occur. And they're, they're used for all sorts of things in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but when you have a, typically catalysts are solid, and when you form, let's say you, if you could convert CO2 into carbon, it's like converting it back into charcoal, right? That's, this is a good thing. Um, but that material would typically stick on the surface of the carbon, and that's a special word for it called coking. Hmm. Well, if your catalyst is a liquid, the material doesn't stick very well, and it will just flake off. So we have some friends in Australia that are um, that are leading this this work, and they've shown that you can use these materials to do some of those reactions. So, I mean, I've I've got a long list of other stuff. I mean, it's got antibacterial properties. Uh, you can use it for three D printing, but I, I don't want your audience to think that gallium is the solution to, to every the, for right. every problem in the world. But it really does have some unique properties and and. Um, depending on how much interest there is, I could elaborate. But well, it but sounds yeah. like gallium. To sum that up, gallium is kind of an undiscovered country. It it's it's a element that that has a lot of potential. Once we discover all that potential, and, and history has proven that there have been these elements and other uh, things around that have been you know with Earth for forever, and just now or or in their in their moment you know, have been discovered uh, that they have these miraculous abilities to either cure or create or react with something to make something better. 
uh, or to make something yeah. new. So gallium seems to be one of those that are kind of getting the spotlight. Are there other researchers besides yourself? I'm sure there are, but are you? Do you work with other researchers? Do you collaborate with other researchers? That you know, for those of you who are into gallium and and are kind of discovering potential new and potential applications for gallium. Uh, is there a, oh, a sure. gallium club yeah. out there in the, in the in the educational world? Uh, there's yeah, there's starting to be. So you know, when I started my career uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, there, there weren't a lot of people working on it. And what's there's kind of an interesting history about 70 years ago, I think, or something like that. There was a there was a paper that basically said, you know, there's this gallium material. It would be really interesting. But oh, darn it. Unlike mercury, you know, it reacts with air and forms this oxide. So people have known about this for a long time. But for many years, the oxide was considered uh, like a bugaboo. It was like a, it's yeah. something you didn't really that want. That was in the ointment, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, you know, if you want a metal, you want a metal. But mo most metals oxidize, including copper and aluminum and stuff like that. So we've, if, if I could take any credit, I think one thing that we've done is try to flip that on its head a little bit and say, yeah, I mean, for certain applications, that's certainly true. But um but for others, like for patterning the metal and making these stretchy devices and stuff. So yeah, it becomes me, an attribute. Just, it's, it's not it's like an it's, Yeah, it's a feature or attribute. Yeah. And so for me, I was really, it's not that we did anything brilliant, but we were just kind of at the right place at the right time. And in the meantime, other people have discovered uh, some of this research. And, um, and you know, we're not the only ones. There's, there's a lot of groups actually in the U.S. now that are working. Uh, there's an explosion of research in China um, on this topic. There's researchers in well, really everywhere. I mean, I, I could, could name names, but it wouldn't mean much to your audience. But I'd, I'm just happy to, to be here to, to be the one representing uh, this work. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to take too much credit because there are a lot of, first of all, there's students in my group that contributed a lot. Everything I showed was done by students. They really deserve the credit. But um, the major advances that are coming out now are not not always from our lab. They're from from all over the place. And it's, you know, I wish it was always from our lab, but it's, it's also great to see that there's a community now of people that are working in this space. Well, and also I think the work you're doing, uh, since you've been doing it for so long, one of the earlier researchers in, on this subject um, probably is, you know, the genesis for other researchers to start, you know, like he's onto something, you know, let's, let's continue it. So I think there's credit, not that you're seeking it, but I, I do think there's credit even from other labs that are discovering new things um, because they probably... They may not have even bothered with it were it not for, you know, former research that, that has gone on and inspired somebody. Um, uh, Michael, I, I really appreciate the, uh, the work you're doing. Uh, oh, you. I look forward to seeing uh, the applications. I look forward to the bragging rights. Uh, when I can go, I, I knew him. I interviewed him on my show. <laughs> I interviewed him just after Seth, Seth Myers did. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, um, you know, I'll, I'll definitely uh, take those bragging rights to the, to the bar with me and, uh, and use them to see what that'll get me. Um, I will also uh, post for, for our, our listeners and our viewers, um, uh, Michael did a, uh, a, a TED Talk, TEDx Talk, on this subject. Uh, and um, a lot of the videos that uh, have, were on this episode were also on, on the TED Talk. Um, but if you're familiar with TED Talks, they're wonderful because they explain things in a very understandable way, as Michael did today. Um, but it's a it's a good, you know, fairly short, like eighteen or nineteen minutes, twenty minutes or mm -hmm. so, um, 
uh, easier easier to digest than this long format show. Um, so I'll I'll put that link on our on our site as well, and any other links that I, I find that are that are relevant. Um, yeah, when Michael, I prepared for that, I was joking that uh, that might be the only thing my grandchildren know about me. So I'd, I really went went to great efforts to make sure it was it was pretty polished. But um, my daughters like to torment me by turning that TEDx talk on and um, turning up the volume on our home computer and then playing it at half speed. So I oh, it sounds wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. If I, I'm an audio guy. Yeah, take any you know all the podcast apps allow you to change change the speed. You know so. You can listen to it at, at 2x speed. I frequently do that if I'm trying to, you know, down a podcast before I arrive at my destination. Or one and a half speed. But the funniest is to listen to any normal conversation at half speed. It just sounds like they are staggering out of a bar trying to, trying to put a sentence together. It's so funny. And no one escapes that. It, it, no matter how good a speaker you are, played back at half speed. It's the funniest thing to listen to. It's... The funniest thing to listen to. Uh, yeah, I've, I've not even watched it because I don't want to hear my own voice. <laughs> and, uh, so they, they already know that. And then they play it at half speed. And then they, they, you know, unplug the keyboard and stuff. So I can't stop it. And um, oh, they, they're, they, they they're great. Very, very cat, and, cat and mouse. Yeah, they're, they're figuring out like how to stymie me from turning it off. So that's amazing. Uh, Get back at that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, well, and because you're not their professor, it's not like you can fail them, right? You can't threaten them with, yeah. with, with much, you know, uh, that will affect their whole life. So, um, yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you for the work you do. Thanks, especially for taking, you know, a little over an hour out of your life to be on the show. And, um, uh, thank, thank you, you for educating me and my audience. It's a real honor for me to talk to you and, and, um, I appreciate the education you're giving me. You're a great. You're a great professor, and you oh, allow people you. like me that are not into the the you know the the metrology of, of of metals to understand. At least I can pretend to understand. I have a, a basic understanding of something I didn't know before. So thank you for yeah. educating me. I appreciate thank you. it. It's been real fun. Thank you. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating this show. Thanks for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. Send comments or episode suggestions to Mike at MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.